welcome again to a new episode of Karen Talks. And this is another special episode for TIFF 2020. And I am joined this time by fellow film critic Lilai. And she will discuss her favorite film and she will give you an introduction for herself. And today we're discussing Under the Open Sky by Mio Ishikawa. And then we're going to be discussing other films that Lee may have liked throughout the film festival. So Lee, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Carolyn. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Um, so my name is Lee. I am the founder and editor-in-chief of Mediaversity Reviews, which is a website that scores TV shows and movies based on how diverse they are. Um, I've been working on that for a few years now, and mostly I'm just writing my own reviews, attending film festivals, and just getting to know all the wonderful TV and film critics in this world. Yes. So again, thank you so much for joining me. And this film that we're going to talk about today is, a, I think, is a beautiful film. And it's, it, it could potentially make people feel a certain way because of how it ends. But and, and the storyline, because the storyline is about this, this man, he's a former Yakuza and he went to prison for about 13 years for committing a violent act. So he essentially beat this man to death. And you're wondering, how are you going to have a redemption story about a man who did such a horrible act? But then the film tells you what happens and you're like, OK this is kind of justified and then it helps you to feel more and and the funny thing about this film is you actually feel more empathetic towards him before you even find out what he is because the lead actor does such an amazing job of giving this character um, depth and heart and you, and you just love him and you want to be just like I want everything to work for him and I think and it's one of my top films from TIFF 2020 for sure so Lee, yeah. so just tell us a little bit of what, so we're, as we discuss, we're going to say what we love about the film and what we think is really interesting about it and, you know, just really get into it. We can, I think we can get spoilery with this one because I, like for me, spoilers don't necessarily spoil a film because it's still, I still have to see what happens and how everything happens. So that's, and for our, and for my podcast, I like to get really in depth with the, with the film discussion. So we'll just go all out with this one. <laughs> Okay, perfect. I'm on the same page with Mediaversity. I'm all about spoilers because then you really get to be able to analyze a movie. You know, we're not here just to be marketing it. We're here to talk about it. Exactly. Um, right. So everything you said, I agree with. It's it's um, It sounds like it needs to be this redemption story for an ex-Yakuza member. But what I love about the film is that really it kind of just winds up being a mood. <laughs> um, it's it's um, you have these narrative beats like, yes, you have an ex yakuza member. He gets out of prison. He goes to Tokyo. And the story is about how he tries to reintegrate into society. And how does he do that? Does he go back to his gangster ways? So it has these familiar narrative beats. But what actually winds up happening is that because the director, Nishikawa, she, she focuses so much on the person, on the humanity of this one person, that it never feels like we're on the rails of this like story arc. I don't feel like I'm being taken for necessarily like a scripted ride. Childlike and kind of has a short temper like a little boy sometimes, but you can tell that he wants to go straight. He's trying really hard to, to not fall back into these kind of violent ways, but he struggles with it. And what I love is that you see him go back and forth. You're never, you're never being manipulated as the audience member to necessarily root for him, capital R, but you're also not being manipulated into saying like, oh, well, this is definitely how he like falls back to his old ways. So the whole thing is so humanistic, I think is really the, the word for it. 
um, we're just following along with this one person. And I love that she kind of just lays it all out for us to watch. Um, it's entertaining in small, humorous ways through the acting, um, but it's never in your face. And then ultimately, I'm personally just like such a hoe for really pretty cinematography. Yes. <laughs> like, like you can get me so easy with just like a static shot for like five minutes long on a pretty sky. <laughs> like I'm really easy sometimes. So Enter the Open Sky totally does that. It's really, really pretty. Um, with soft colors, soft warm colors, soft cool colors. Um, I just, yeah, the visuals totally get me in addition to the story. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the lead character, Mikami, played by Koji Yakusho. So what's interesting, and I think is, I think is what's so subtle about this film is, like, as we said, we, we, it initially seems like it's a film about this Yakuza man reintegrating to society, but what was very interesting for me is watching this to show how society makes it so much, makes it so difficult for people who, who've been in prison, for, especially for really long periods of time, to integrate into society because society says, oh, we want you to become a productive member of society. We want you to contribute to society. We want you to work, find a, find a job, find comfortable living. We want you to, to be nice to the people around you. We don't want you to go back into prison, but they make it so difficult because he has a record. And they're like, okay, you can find a job, but then he can't find a job because he has a record. If he does find it, and, and then if he can't find a job, he doesn't have the means to get this job. Like, for instance, one of his things, he's obsessed with finding a job as a driver because that's something he used to do. But he can't get a job as a driver because his license has expired. And being in prison for, for over 13 years, like, society has changed. Even traffic laws have changed. And and the way that they drive on these on, in Japan has changed. And He's, and and vehicles have changed, right? You know, like everything would have been manual when he went into prison, now everything's automatic. And he has to go to learn to drive and he's failing because he can't get accustomed to to, to operating a, a, a truck because it's so much different to how it was when he used to be a driver. And it's about, and, it's, and I just, and it showed how people in society thinks they're also civilized and so nice and they're better than the men in prison where he has more humanity and more compassion than the people on the outside. And I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition to show that everyone who is in prison is not necessarily um, less civilized than the people outside. And, and the way she does it is very subtle in the fact that people are more rude. They, they don't care about other, if someone falls, they're not gonna help, they're not gonna help you. If they need, if someone needs help getting something taken up a flight of stairs, they're just gonna walk past you and not offer to help. And he's the one who does that. If someone falls, he's gonna help them Get it. If he sees someone struggling to lift something, he's the one that's gonna help them lift. And I thought that was I thought that was brilliant. And it was and like one of those plot subplots that really now this is the one that really hurt me is there's he finds a job as a caretaker, ironic, yes, because he's actually a very nice, he's actually a very nat he's a natural caregiver. And there's uh one of the caretakers is um someone who has a mental this uh, intellectual disability, and he finds and he's drawn to this young man and he's look and this young man is so careful to him and shows him about flowers and everything but the other people who work there are are not nice they're mean and they're and they're and they're impatient and they're rude and he can't understand this he's like why are you so rude and mean to this young man he hasn't done anything to you and it shows that and these same people are going to think that they're more and they think that they're better than people who've been locked up for crimes yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with everything you just said. 
there's a lot of, uh, I guess, subverting of what you might think is an ex-Yakuza person or people who you think are caregivers and nurses, but then you realize that these people are the ones who are gossiping and kind of being cruel and bullying someone who has a mental disability. So there is a lot of these subversions going on, but at the same time, what I found impressive is that Nishikawa doesn't, I I just never felt emotionally manipulated in any way. Mm -hmm. She's not very, um, like she doesn't throw all of these things in your face because for example, Mikami, the protagonist, he might be the one who's protecting and standing up for the little guy or the person who has the disability. But at the same time, you, you can see that he has anger issues. Mm-hmm. He does resort, he does um, beat somebody up, even though the person he's beating up, they're bullies, but he has his own issues with being, with being too violent. Um, and so you never feel like it's like, oh, this is such a sob story for an ex-gangster. And then I wanted to go back a little bit to what you're saying about showing how hard it is to reintegrate into society. I think a lot of movies and a lot of storytelling can say that, yeah, it's really hard. But what I loved about Under the Open Sky is that she is that Nishikawa isn't telling us, oh, this is hard. She's showing us by by putting Mikami in this impossible situation where he wants to be a driver, like you said, because he wants to get a job. And then instead of just saying, oh, it's impossible to get a job, she shows us why step-by-step. He tries to get his license renewed. They say, you have to retake the test. So he tries to retake a test, but he doesn't have access to a car. So he can't practice. Mm -hmm. And so when he does take his test, he fails immediately because (laughs) he just had no chance to practice. And now that's on his record. And so she takes us through these scene by scene, step by step. And you and you're not told, oh, it's impossible to get a job after. You're just seeing what the steps are that he has to take. And then you realize for yourself as the viewer, you can put the puzzle pieces together and recognize it's like, okay, so this is really what the experience might look like as someone leaving prison in Japan after 13 years. And this is how hard it is to reintegrate into society. Mm. And I, I, even though this film is set in Japan, it does, and it does deal specifically with certain um, cultural aspects of Japanese, um, sorry, of Japanese culture, I think it could apply to like North America too, because we've, like, like you mentioned, there's films that talk about how hard it is for ex-cons to reintegrate to society, but they never show you exactly how difficult it is. And like for films and TV shows where we've seen, especially um, uh, people of people of color, men of color, um, trying to reintegrate into society, they're stigmatized. And people expect them to go back in. They'll be like, oh, you what you you are all and you'll probably go back in again. And it's like, how about you try to help me not to go back into society, go back into prison? How about you help me integrate into the society that you want me to be? How about you help me be a better person? And it's like people say, oh, do this, do this, but they never actually help you do it. And 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 they and they pro- prove to be more of a stumbling block than a than a than a help. And in the, and this film, one of those stumbling blocks at first is his social worker. And his social worker is, is, his job is to help him find a job, find access to, to, um, to a home and to live situations. And his, his social worker is at first ambivalent. He's not, he's not showing any interest and he's, and he's dismissive and he's rude. And then Mikami has a point where he's like, but you're supposed to help me. He's like, your job is to help me, help me be better. Help me do what you want me to do. 
and and I do appreciate that that she had the care the care the social worker apologize to him, and I, I I really appreciated that because I don't think I don't think I've ever seen that in any kind of film where you have a situation like that where the, the social worker is like I'm wrong I I and you know and because they because they're in a position of authority and and, and have this and uh, hold the keys to to the, to the success they think that their their superiority gives them the right to treat their clients any way they want. And in this situation, he apologizes and he realizes I am stopping from being, I'm stopping from being the success that society wants you to be. And I, and I really love that. And also Mikami has, a, I think he had a really good support system where his friends that were there from before were there for him after. And they were like, we're going to help you find a house. We're going to support you. We're going to celebrate you finding a job at this nursing home. But then they also proved to be a problem without even realizing it where they were, where they're the ones who said, if you see someone being bullied, don't step in, hold your head down. And there's a line where he says, and this was the one that really hit me. He's like, and I, I, I put it in my notes because this is this, I think this really encapsulates the entire pieces of her film, where she where he asked his best friend, he's like, if I'm an uh, he's like, if I'm an honorable citizen, why would I stand by and watch someone getting lynched? And 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 that really put the whole the whole film into this one little line. He's like, what does honor mean to you? It shouldn't be an shouldn't an honorable person be there be a help to someone who's struggling? Shouldn't an honorable person stand up and be there for someone who needs defending? And his friends were like, yes, but we would rather we but we would we know it could lead us to 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 problems. So we would rather you hold your head down, tuck your tail in between your legs, and scurry on away so that you can continue to do that another day. And I understood where they were coming from because they know of his anger issues and they know it could lead potentially to him being back in prison. But me as a person who, who, who has experienced bullying and I hate, I, I hate to see other people get bullied, I hate unfairness, I was angry at them as well because I'm like, what kind of society tolerates people being bullied, right? Like what makes you think that you're also honorable by watching people be mistreated? Like that's not honorable. That's nothing to be proud of. And it's like, what does that say about society in general? And for Mikami, he struggles with that right up until the very end. And I think that's what happens. I think what happens at the end is a result of that, where he's literally heartbroken. He's like, I can't live in, I can't, this, like, it goes against everything that he is on the inside. And and I, I, I this is a film that I wish so a lot of people get to see, because I think Miwa does a fantastic job just that, as you said, she doesn't tell, she shows. And and it, it, I don't know that I there's something about this film that I, I would love to speak to her because like you mentioned the cinematography and like a lot of it has to and like because this is a film about uh someone who's, who who has a potential to be so violent she actually gives it a very soft feel like the cinematography is very soft and it feels very um light like she she focuses a lot on small things like flowers and wind and like the sky and there's nothing harder edgy about this film at all. And I love that she kind of like shows that this person has the potential to be soft and caring. Right. Um, and like you mentioned a lot about how there's all of these contrasts that are going on in the film that I think gives it that texture and that tension that you need in order to make a film interesting. Um, and so on the one hand, and like you said, he is being told by society that because he's ex-Yakuza, he isn't honorable, but then at the same time, society is bullying people. And so he has this moral 
conundrum, do you protect people um, even though at the same time society will punish you for it? Do you stand up for this little guy by beating up the bullies, but then maybe he'll go back to jail? So there's a lot of this interesting tension that happens. uh, And that probably adds to why I felt like there wasn't a lot of emotional manipulation happening. I think because it's everything is shown it to be really conflicting. There's so much gray area. And I think Nishikawa is just slowly exploring all of it through this film. She's not saying, oh, well, society has to be this way. She's just kind of showing it as it is and presenting the problems that someone like Mikami might have being able to find success within the society where he has his own code of honor. But, um, but the film shows him at some point when he gets too frustrated with society, he kind of starts to go back into that lifestyle. He visits, he goes back to Kyushu from Tokyo and he goes back to where his gang was. And in, and he is so frustrated and disillusioned, I think by society at this point in the film. But what's really I think heartbreaking is that you also see how Yakuza as a, as a, powerful entity, how they've actually lost power over time um, in Japan. And I, I can't say I know this from personal experience. I'm not Yakuza and I'm not Japanese, but I thought it was an interesting window into perhaps how something like, um, like the Yakuza might be less powerful today than they were 20 years ago. So that was really interesting to see, but also sad for the character because one, he can't fit in society, and two, the old society where he did have dignity, where he did have success and power, that's gone now, and it's faded, and she, again, shows this to you. She doesn't tell you that Yakuza is over. She shows you because his old um, his, his old boss leader, he has a lot of bravado. The first time he gets back into um, Kyushu, they greet him with open arms, and he gets these naked women who give him a bath, and... <laughs> You know, it's all of these things where he's like, yes, I finally feel like a human again and not this like belittled person trying to get a job. Mm. But then, but then sort of in a turn, you find out that this Yakuza boss leader, he, he is disabled and you don't realize in the beginning because you're introduced to him sitting down, but then you find out that he no longer has the ability to walk and it, it had to do something with his lifestyle, whether I forget the reason why he had diabetes. Uh, he lost oh, okay. leg to diabetes, and I thought that was right. so interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Like she, I think she just keeps kind of subverting your expectations. See, even I thought I was like, oh, maybe he like got in a fight, and he's like, oh no, she's just showing the decline of health <laughs> as time goes on, and maybe that's mirroring um, how the yakuza might be fading and growing old and not fitting into the society anymore. So the whole the whole thing is very sensitive. And it's not blaming anybody. It's just kind of showing how times change. Not everybody necessarily keeps up with the times and how painful that can be for an individual. Mm. Um, yeah, like there, the two things that you mentioned. So one is the, like for him, I, one of the other, I think, subplots is for him trying to go back home and trying to go back to his past because he's an orphan and he, he was raised by his mom, but his mom gave him up. And he's and for him, he's not bitter about that. Like he, he as an adult, he's like he just he's he's he considers and it, and it's I love that she has a man do this for that she has a man who thinks about this. He's like maybe she was maybe she had she was stigmatized for being a single mother, 
and where maybe she couldn't afford to look after me or maybe something happened where she had no choice but to give me up. And I love that she had this perspective from a male character because we very rarely see that in um, in film or in TV where if there's a character, and I would say this even for like my, my, my beloved K-dramas where there's a character who has been um, given up for adoption and or has and, or, and placed um, in a home where they're, you know, resentful of being abandoned. But in this in this in this instance, he, he's not resentful at all. He's like he considers her position as a woman in a patriarchal society that it, that she could have had no other choice. And he just wants to know what happened to her. He just wants her to know that he loves her despite what may have happened. And for him, there's a question that, and he said, there's a question that he just wants to ask her. What was his birth like for her? And I love that. I'm like, he just like, I want to know what my birth was like from you, from your perspective as a mother and as a woman. Was it difficult? Was it was it painful? And he he he, because he's thinking about her feelings and her emotions as a woman. And I and I gotta keep saying this, but I love that you have a male character who's thinking about a woman's perspective about birth. That he doesn't make it about himself. And there's I think and one of his friends, I think it's his best friend. He, he, he does, and he does consider it, and his best friend said, he asked his mother the same question. He said his mom, I think he said his mom was in labor with him for over a day. He's like, and he just said she was in a lot of pain. And, and I love that you have another male character acknowledge that birth is painful for women, that they have to go, that women have to go through so much just to give birth to a child. And, and, and then one of the other things is he goes to a home, he eventually finds out the home where he was placed as a child. And he meets this little boy and he plays with him and he cries. And I cried at that scene because he cried and I cried where he's just so happy to have this moment of, of freedom. And he's just like, like, I can just be, all right? Yeah, I cried too during that scene you're talking about. So to um, to kind of recap, I guess, what leads up to it, this is towards the end of the film. Mm-hmm. And um, and actually the one of the film's many small narrative threads is that he is like you said, trying to find his mother again. And one of these things leads him to his original orphanage to see if he can get more information about what happened to her. Um, and and so there's this really great scene where he's just playing with the boys who are at the orphanage. They're playing soccer. And um, he just looks so happy. The cinematography here really is super warm. You have the sun behind him. Um, you have a lot of close, intimate shots of his face. Uh, it's just a really beautifully shot scene. And then what happens next is they go into the orphanage. And, and this this part is probably my favorite of the entire film. I'm glad that you allow spoilers on this podcast because <laughs> I'm just going to describe the scene. But um, But he goes and they realize that there's really nobody left from this orphanage who worked during the same time that he he was there as a child because it's been so many decades. And that feeds to this film's overarching theme of how time passes and things are not the same and some people just get left behind. And it's really pretty haunting, but true. And and then they do find one woman who did work at the orphanage and she's very old and she doesn't remember him. And you're you're in this moment where they're sitting across from each other at the table and you and you feel so sad for them because this was his only chance to maybe know something about his mother. We've spent the entire film pretty much getting to this point and we find out, oh, well, nobody knows. But then, um, but they start talking a little bit about the orphanage itself. And then in a really powerful moment, um, they, 
start singing this one song that they would always, the kids would always sing every morning. And then when um, he starts humming it, then this older woman who was there, um, she starts singing it. And so there's a really beautiful moment where they actually connect fully and they're singing the song together and I'm crying. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I, I, I loved the message there that what I got out of it is that, yes, things change and, um, and there's a lot of alienation that happens. There's a lot of sadness that comes with that trauma of breaking apart, um, you know, like not having that familial tie or not having a tie to the society that you don't recognize anymore. But at the same time, there's these moments, there's these small things that will still connect you to other human beings. And it's so powerfully presented something about just hearing music because it's used pretty sparingly in this film. Mm -hmm. So when they do use it and they're singing with their own voices, it's very powerful. Yeah. And I love that scene because it, it kind of also shows that some something that we may not think about as children actually helps grow us as adults. And for me, that was like, like I, 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 I thought about, when I was in, as a child, like we would always sing nursery rings and, you know, and are there be like specific smells and there's something that we, and we might just smell something or hear and we just be like immediately transported back into that situation. And you'd be thinking, oh, I shouldn't remember something when it was like four or five, six, but our brains are so amazing that these small little things may be able to just take us back to that time. And it was kind of the same for him. Is that why he's like, I have no connection. He thinks I don't have any connection, but immediately he hears the song, he starts to connect. And he's like, okay, I do have something from my childhood that I can hold on to. And he's like, I did, and it's almost like he's, it's a confirmation that he did exist. You know, that he was, I was here at this moment. I was here at this time. And there's someone who was there at the same time as me. And also I love that his friend um, who took him there just sat down there. Cause there's a moment where the camera focuses on his friend's face. And it's like this moment of pure joy where he's so happy for, for Mikami, where he's like, I'm so happy that he gets to experience this. And, and I, I love that you, you just have someone who's, his, who's connected to him, watching him embrace this moment. And, and then even, and then the other moment, when you mentioned like his, um, his old friend who was, who was a Yakuza boss, and it's, 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 like they're just living this kind of mundane life, lifestyle now. Like the, the, the Yakuza has lost power. And, and when you talk about his connection to his past and like he has this connection to this past and this is the other side of his past, which is more violent. But then you also see that these are also now just regular human beings trying to live, like live, live their life as they can now. And yeah, they have men who work for them and they're young men and they still bow to them and, you know, and show respect and deference. But then they're just having regular times and he's like sending him on like to the supermarket <laughs> to go and, go and get um, groceries for his wife to make dinner. And, like, in, and I love that because in other films, especially action films where you deal with the Yakuza, they're always, it's always connected to some kind of violence. Like they're, if they're sending their minions to do an errand, it's something violent, like to go and kill someone or hurt someone. And in this one, the guy's just sending him to the store to go and get some groceries wrong from the, the, the corner market. And I love that. And even when like, you mentioned, um, like when we talk about him losing his, his legs, it shows that these men are as regular as anyone else. Like they will succumb to disease. They will succumb to ill health. And, 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 and then where, when Mikami meets them, I mean, like this is another affirmation of his past where he's like, I may have had a violent past with these people, but they still genuinely care for him. There are still people who were concerned about him because they said to him like, 
you are going to get in trouble for being here with us. And they're like, we don't want you to get in trouble. And they show concern and, and, and love for him. And like the wife was like, we love you. We don't want you to go back to prison. And we love, and because we love you, we don't want you to stay around us. And that's just another affirmation to him that he matters, right? That even if society at large is telling him that you have to conform to our, to our things, his friends are telling him, we love you as you are, because we know who you are. We understand why you are the way you are. And, and I, it's just important for a character like this to know that he matters, right? Especially in society where, every, where everyone, where people don't seem to understand or want to understand. Right. That's a really important theme through the movie is this idea of dignity. And they show it in a really, really powerful way uh, because you see that he doesn't, this guy has a lot of pride, Mikami. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to be on welfare when his social worker initially um, says you can just um, fill out, fill this out and like take welfare. Then it's one of the scenes where Mikami, you can see his, his, um, anger issues because he gets really upset about this idea where he says, I don't want, well, I don't want to be on welfare. I want a job. He stands up. He kind of makes a scene in the office. And, um, but, but this is recurring for him. He really, really just wants to feel like he's contributing to society. And it's interesting to see that what we deem as mainstream society they're not really giving him a chance to do that in a way that feels right for him because mm -hmm. he wants to be valued for his hard work because he works so hard. Um, but, but they're telling him, they're like, well, we can't really do anything with you. So take this welfare check. Um, and that's not what he wants. Mm. And actually I wanted to go back a little bit because you talked about how, um, how the, different like senses, like the sense of smell or the song can really transport you. Um, that made me think about how, how technically interesting this film is because um, going back to how there aren't these big narrative swoops and arcs, it's, it has so much to do with the texture of the film. Mm. And I think that there's something so interesting about how Nishikawa really focuses on the senses where it's sight with the cinematography or taste or sound, just all of these little things are so much more evocative of experience. And I think it kind of gives the film almost this like level of mindfulness because you're, for him, you're really in the present with this, with this ex-Yaksa member, even though so much of his life has happened before. But um, there's just an immediacy to small things like him sitting down to fill out an application or um, or again, like the sharing a song with somebody. There's a lot of really, really textural, tangible moments that happen like that. And I love that in any film, really. I think mm -hmm. I love films that are very, um, very mind, like they practice mindfulness. <laughs> no, it's true because you mentioned the texture and like how it does go for the senses. Like for Tasha, as viewers, we can't sense you can't get a sense of touch with what, but there's moments where he'll see something like there's like the flowers in the garden where he's the scene with the young man who, um, who has a mental disability. He, he's tending to the flowers and he, and he holds a earthworm in his hand and he tells Mikami, look, he's like, look, touch, right? And he's showing him how to touch the soil. He's on feel the soil and touch the flowers and feel the petals. And there's these moments where Mikami, like he does do, he does that. He just like gets into these soft, these very soft moments. And like you mentioned there's a scene where he goes back to his hometown and he meets this, this woman who is um, 
she I, I think she's an escort and it is very soft and it's very soft it's about her they're bathing each other and they're just laying on and the lighting is very soft and and moody and and they're talking very quietly to each other and I, and I love that where you see him this is another moment where you see someone tending to him and to and and like showing him that he matters and that his presence matters to them and for, and it's not about sex, it's, it's about comfort, right? And I, and I love there's these moments where you get to see him be present with other people and or just be present in um, around. Like he'll stand in the sun and he'll feel the sun on his face and he'll look up at the sky and it's just moments to see him basking. And 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 it kind of that kind of takes me to to the scene where you find out why he actually goes back to prison because not why he goes back, but why he went to prison. And it has to do with, to show again, how what a, actually a caring person he is. And the reason he's locked up is because he was defending his wife. And when that happened, I was like, oh, so he didn't even go to prison for anything Yakuza related. He went to prison because this man was attacking his wife. And as you and as we mentioned, he has anger issues and it got out of hand. But the man tried to kill his wife and then tried to kill him. And he gets... I think I'm fairly persecuted about that because there's a moment in the trial where he asked the judge, so was I just supposed to stand there and watch my wife get killed? Right. And the judge couldn't answer. And the judge, but the judge still sentences him. And the wife is like, and the wife tells him, don't say anything more. And he's like, how can I not say anything more? Like you could have died. You were pregnant. And, 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 and it was just like this man, his, a lot of his anger comes from, watch from not being able to tolerate people being bullies, right? And I think that's where is he's not angry for anger's sake. He does have reasons to get angry, but it's just like he has the and he he struggles with pulling back at the right time. He struggles with going overboard. Right. Yeah. I mean all of that. It's just a really complex movie. You, yeah, um... it's it's so it's, it's like it's so complicated. Like when I when I started watching this and like she just revealed more and more of who this Apumakami is. I was like, wow. I'm like, okay. So like you, I'm like, you, 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 you're just telling us like, this is, this is, there's nothing surface level about this film. And if people miss it, I'm like, you're not paying attention. <laughs> oh, completely. Yeah. Cause on the surface, it's probably pretty boring. Like, <laughs> let's just be real. It's one of these indie movies. It's quiet. It's slow. But like, if you just, if you're in the right mood for it and you feel like kind of thinking while you're watching the movie, there's just levels and levels um, and it's, again, it's like, you have to be very present to, to soak it all up. Um, yeah. It kind yeah. of reminds me of um, shoplifters in mm-hmm. the fact that shoplifters, you think these people are just a family of petty criminals, but then you realize why they are petty criminals and how they do what they do. And it's just, and the more you get to know about this family, the more layers get pulled back and reveal a lot about society and it reveals a lot about, um, about family dynamics and also sexism and mis- misogyny and how all of these things can play into one one aspect. And I'm just like, ah, oh, I love films like that. <laughs> Me too. That's a great example. I didn't I didn't make that connection with shoplifters, but they are really, really um, similar in the way that exactly like you said, they give you a story and an ostensible story, but really it's the whole thing's like a remark on society. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, right. and, and in ways that are a little bit quieter than Parasite because Parasite yeah, will beat you in the face with, <laughs> with Par- everything Parasite, that happens Parasite to me was a very Korean interpretation of how you can do that I find um, especially with, if you like do a comparison between Japanese and Korean films that have like similar themes or um, like I find like Korean films going to be very in-depth like, there's one I watched um, another one that I love called um 
old uh, oh lord I don't I can't it's the old lady oh not old boy is it no 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 it's what I showed at TIFF it's called um old something oh my gosh I'm gonna put it in the thing that's what it's called the old lady but it's about this woman and she's in she's in her 60s and she's raped and this film really does examine how even women that like she like there's a there's moments where she like she like say I mean what what are you trying to say because I'm old no one would want to rape me and it, it and it's about how and then she's like it's about power the the victim's age doesn't matter it's all the, the it's all about how the perpetrator has an opportunity to to exert power over someone more vulnerable than them and this film really does talk about um sexism and misogyny and and it's again like um like under the office car even shoplifters where you have this criminal aspect but it shows you how society um facilitates or, or reacts to certain crimes and and i love films like that where it's like it seems like it's one story but then it's it just like, exposes so much about society and about people and it's just like, i love films like that and it's angsty but then not super angsty but it's dramatic but not super dramatic <laughs> <laughs> well i think it's interesting that you bring up how maybe it, you said it was a very like paris it was very korean interpretation um, I haven't seen a ton of Korean movies. I've seen a lot more Japanese ones, but I think just riffing off of that, I wonder if the Korean films I have seen, there's always almost like a sensationalist aspect to it where they take a part of society and then they like put it in its most insane form. Like it's most crazy off the rails um, thing like old boy I mentioned mm-hmm. Um, that's like one story where it's like, there's a twist and then it's shocking. And then Japanese films, it's like a lot of repression. (laughs) I don't know. Like, I feel like so much happens under the surface and it's like almost very English in that way where people will talk to each other and they say one thing, but because of their tone or because of the expression that they make, it's like, you know, they're saying something else. (laughs) Yeah. That feels pretty Japanese to me. <laughs> no, I, no, I, I, I don't know. Not to make big, grandiose statements about no, full, I, I like entire cultures. I, I, but there is, there are specific, there are specific things that are identifiers of these cultures. Like if you say for Japanese, like they are a bit more, ref, uh, not refined, but more repressed in how they. Like even if you look at Japanese language, the way they speak is very um, staccato, and it's about say bam, 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 bam. Even though it's lyrical. It still has very um to me because I've studied both Japanese, Mandarin, and, and and I'm learning Korean. Is like there's specific ways that you have to speak, and and Japanese is very bam 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 bam, and their language is to me, if to my ears, always sounds more um stern and more um thing, and and even like when women speak, when you speak, when women speak, they they don't show their tongue. Their tongues are tucked behind their teeth because it's about looking more demure and ladylike, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas for and like for for Korean, Korean is more expressive. Like they're very they're very expressive speakers, and they and they do like a hey like you know and, <laughs> and and Chinese and like Mandarin and Cantonese is the same. It's very expressive and very right. um, very big. And when you look at Korean films, Korean uh, when like even like you talk about old by Paris, and but even when you watch dramas, it's the same way. A lot of these dramas have very specific um, themes. Like people, I also people wanting but dramas is they're very deceptive you you go in thinking you're going for this love story or for this big dramatic story for action and that is it but they show you so much about society and about how society functions and all those and how people function in society and but it's done in a very dramatic and overt way whereas if when i watch um, japanese dramas it's very it's way more 
I, I think it's subtle, right? It's way more like you got to really pay attention. And when I watch C dramas, it's kind of the same way, but I can't really stand C dramas because the women act. I can't stand the way it's mostly women act. I can't. <laughs> All of that screaming, they keep so much noise. I don't know why. But uh, <laughs> but, 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 there, but there are differences. Same thing with American, North American TV, whether it's Canadian or American, is like they like to tell you that they're giving you this, 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 um, this study on society, but like they don't ever really get into what is truly problematic about society. Like you can have a film that's you can have shows like cop shows, but they but like I and we mentioned and a lot of people are talking about it recently, where you can have cop shows, but it's more propaganda than anything else. They never truly call out what is problematic in like in like the police culture, where you can have where people who are like um like public defenders are um, even prosecutors are the. IA internal affairs they're seen more as the villains than the cops and like they did villainize IA and like internal affairs is there to make do checks and balances on the police they're there if the police are acting out of order they're like you need to be reprimanded you need to face discipline you need to be fired or whatever but because the shows are about the cops the cops make it seem as though internal affairs is the villains they're the rats for checking and thing but no like you do need checks and balances because y'all is a bunch of criminals right <laughs> and where like if I watch Korean dramas about cops like even if the cops are anti-heroes there's always someone there who will call them out always whether it's just, whether it's a civilian or another cop or if it's someone in IA there's always someone there who will call them out and the cops themselves even have to realize at a point in time um this is and this is something that happens in every single drama where even the cops were the least they will realize yeah we bunch of criminals we corrupt and the the system needs to be brought on a peg or two and I don't ever see that in American North American shows, which is why you stop watching it because it's all propaganda. Like, yeah, that's super interesting because I I don't really watch Korean dramas. I, I watch a lot of other Asian dramas, but just yeah. not um, a ton of Korean ones. So I'm like, okay, I, I want that essay that you're gonna write, <laughs> or I, if you put it in another podcast, I will listen. <laughs> I, I I yeah, I do think I will do another podcast dedicated to my love of Asian dramas, not just Korean, but because I, I do watch like the Taiwanese. I've started watching a bit more Taiwanese and Chinese dramas. Like um, there was a really good Taiwanese um, drama called The Victim's Game, which is an amazing psychological drama. Like the plus and twist in this darn show. I'm like, what, what, what? And I love it too because the main character is neurodivergent. He has Asperger's. And I love how that is handled um, in the show where he, like, his, he knows he has Asperger's. The people he works with has Asperger's. And and him being a criminologist, like that plays, and he's not, he's a, not a criminologist. Oh my God. The people who do like look for DNA and evidence. What do you call those again? He's like a forensic. Forensic, yeah, that's what he. he he's a forensic. Um, right, he's like a forensic scientist. Right? Yeah, he's a forensic scientist. So his Asperger's plays into that because he looks for right. most minutest detail and all that, and it really plays into how he solves the the crime. So I and I and there's more dramas, Korean dramas, where you're having more neurodivergent leads or more or people with disabilities like. Um, the school nurse files, the male lead character has a physical disability, like his leg was damaged in an accident. Or you have, there's one I haven't watched yet, but the lead, I believe he has a hearing, either he has a hearing disability or I think he's mute, I think. Um, but we're getting more dramas where people have more, um, have visible disabilities and invisible disabilities and it plays into the plot. And again, I don't really watch more, most North American dramas because even when that happens, they exacerbate it and make it seem more um they don't to me deal with it in a realist realistic way so 
yeah but that's also yeah so i will eventually start my own podcast for my asian grandmas we, and we and of course i'll have you on where we can talk about our bls our um our thai bl dramas the Good yeah, I could talk bad. about BL dramas, <laughs> boys love, for mm-hmm. those who don't know what BL stands for. Yeah. <laughs> I could talk about that all day long, and I could talk about Taiwanese dramas. Those are, those are I think, my specializations in this world where they cross over with yours. <laughs> yeah, so, so we're going to wrap up, because uh, then you have some other, you have to go and get to, to do your work. And is there anything <laughs> that you would like to plug or any films that you would like anyone, that you would recommend for anyone to see? Oh, well, I think the big one that came out of TIFF was Nomadland by Chloe Zhao, and that was really good. <laughs> um, I'm glad to see it getting all the excitement that it deserves. I also recognize this was a little bit of a slim year in terms of films, and obviously 2020, it's it's not been a banner year for film in particular, but um, there were some really good things that came out. Nomadland, um, Under the Open Sky, I really enjoyed Um and I'm kind of just looking forward to seeing what people can still continue to put out. Um, and as for Mediaversity itself, um, I guess what I'm, I'm pretty excited about a study that just came out where um, it, it was put out by UCLA and, um, and it uses Mediaversity grades as its data source. So I'm personally really proud of that work and seeing that there's bigger headlines being made. Um, based on what we're doing on our end with my, my writers and how we're discussing qualitative diversity. Because I think like we're at a point where everybody gets that, yes, diversity sells, but what does that mean? It's about so much more than just like counting bodies. It's not like, okay, how many POC did you have like in the cast and crew? Like all these things are super important, but we kind of have it covered by a lot of organizations. So I know I'm personally looking for more qualitative conversations about like, okay, but what does authentic storytelling actually mean? And how does it bring marginalized communities into the industry and empower them and include them? So that study just came out. And if you, so if you follow Mediaversity on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, all three places, we're at Mediaversity Rev, R-E-V. And you can check out that study and see how it shows that um, film studios are basically just leaving millions of dollars on the table uh, if they're not casting diversely, because just over time, we through the study, it shows that more non-diverse movies, they just don't really hit as hard at the box office as something like Fast and the Furious, for example. Um, so that's sort of what's new on my plate. And if you want to follow us, then continue to read our reviews, just follow us on social media. And if you're really gung ho about supporting diversity, then we're also on Patreon and we always need that support. We still don't break even because this is a passion project and I am not an entrepreneur. (laughs) I do it because I love to do it. But if you want to support us, we're on Patreon. And also just visit the website. You can Google Mediaversity. It's the first thing that comes up. Mm, yes, I saw that. And I was so happy. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad that like your work is being recognized and is by, by academics because it is important because we always talk about people of color. And yes, it's important to have them behind this, this, the, the camera and in front of. But it also, also has to do with the quality of the storytelling too. We want good storytelling. We want good quality. We want the money put into the production so they are of higher quality. And and the stories have to, and the stories are matter to us. And like you mentioned Fast and Furious, and the reason like Fast and Furious, because people may say it's absurd. And yes, we go to watch for the action and and for the pretty, uh, for the pretty people. But 
you have pretty people from all walks of life, from, from different ethnicities and different cultures and different races, and you're going to have people in those communities want to go out to watch these, these films because they have people on the screen who represent them also. And how studios don't recognize this, like if you have, a, if you put money into a film by a Filipino, starring Filipinos, you're going to have people from the Filipino can, um, community go out there and represent that. And if it has, and if that's a film that has other people from other, like, other Asian cultures and, like, I want to always want to tell filmmakers, yes, all Asians aren't East Asian people. All Asians aren't Japanese, Chinese, Korean. You have Southeast Asian. You have people from Thailand, but, um, the, like the Maldives. You have people from Malaysia. You have people from, um, you know, from all of these different countries and, and different cultures. There's subcultures, people. Like when, when you do things for the Caribbean, <laughs> you're all not Jamaican. <laughs> like, like the, you, you will find Barbadian, Trinidadian, Grenadian solutions and all of these people in living in like if you're going to have something set in New York for instance everyone is not from Jamaica um, from little Jamaica like you have other black Caribbean people living in New York, San Francisco, LA whatever like look, look towards doing that do other cultural castings as well and I'm so proud of you and I'm so proud of what you and your team are doing and for me personally Everyone, you can find, again, my work here on butwhythepodcast.com. You can find more of my Caroline Talks podcast um, interviews. Also, first, so here's what happened. Um, we, we're, we're covering uh, Lovecraft Country and other films. You can also find more of my work on comicsbeat.com and The Observer. And also for the Africa virtual roundtables that we've been doing this summer during quarantine, you can find our interviews with Rada Blank for her film, The 40-Year-Old Version. Um, I, by the time this comes out, you're gonna Chicago Seven is gonna be on Netflix, so that stars Yaha Abu Mateen, and you can find our roundtable with him as well, and a whole host of other interviews with Black creatives in the film and television industry. So please go to the AFCA website and their YouTube channel to watch the roundtables, and you can find me and Lee on Twitter and <laughs> talking about film and TV and other random stuff. And my Twitter is CarrieCNH12, so that's C-A-R-I-E-C-N-H-12 on Instagram as well. Where I, And you'll find my, my posts, um, just look at my pinned tweets, and you'll find my latest film and television coverage in my pinned tweets and on Instagram. And everyone, please wear a mask, wash your hands, and stay safe. And that is it 100%. for this, this, um, this Carolyn Talks Tip 2020. Thank you so much, Lee, for joining me. Thanks, Carolyn. It was so good to catch up with you. Thank you.